The Tom Woods Show, episode 2270. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, creating an online course can be an excellent way of establishing yourself as an authority. It's also a great first product. And if you know what you're doing, it can generate you some real smackers. But how do you do it? Well, I have a teensy-weensy bit of experience with online courses, and I've put together some material that takes you through step-by-step exactly what to do and then how to market that course so people find out about it and buy it. Get these free resources at tomwoods.com slash makecourses. Hey, folks, Tom Woods here. I'm delighted to be joined once again by our old friend Germinal G. Van who since emigrating to the United States from the Ivory Coast in, I believe, 2010, is that the right year? Yep. Has written 12,000 books. It's hard to believe one person could write 12,000, but (laughs) rounding up to the nearest 12,000, that's what we get. But admitting that the two-volume work you've just completed complicates the counting a little bit, roughly how many books are we talking about? I mean, if the two volumes were one book instead of two, it would be 25. Okay, 25, all right. So, by the way, it's completely a natural outcome when you have somebody as prolific as yourself that you would actually start your own publishing company, which indeed you have. Yeah. Before we get started, maybe you want to say a word about that? Yeah, sure. So, I've always had a business and entrepreneurial mind. And I think starting my publishing company was the most logical thing to do. I've self-published and I've been also published by a publisher before. And the process was rather long. And I didn't like the fact that my fate was basically dependent on a publisher because I know my value. I know the skills I have. And the publisher, first of all, takes a very long time just to send you an email saying that they receive your manuscript. Then it takes a while for them to see if they're going to publish you or not. So I was like, I don't want to have to depend on that. I can start my own publishing company. And starting my publishing company was also a way to increase or to improve my own credibility. There are some competitions, some book competition that I want to participate. And for that, it's important that the book that you submit to the competition is published by a publisher rather than self-published. For example, competitions like the Pulitzer Prize or the National Book Awards are competitions that I really, I want to submit my work because I believe that I can win. I'm very confident that I can. But for that, to increase my chances of winning, the book has to be published by a publisher. So that's even one of the reasons why I decided to start my own company. And on top of that, I also wanted to publish other people, specifically first-time authors. I want to give them the chance to be published by a publisher rather than self-publishing to increase their credibility and visibility. So yes, I wanted to help also, yeah, aspiring authors. So do you have a website or an email address people can contact you who might be interested in submitting manuscripts? Oh, yes, absolutely. My website is www.ggvpublishingcompany.com and the email is ggvpublishing.com company at gmail.com. All right, I'll put that up at tomwoods.com slash 2270. Let's get back into a book we started talking about the last time you're on, two-volume study that 
We're still on volume one, A History of Wealth Distribution in the United States. And I asked you, maybe we talked about this off the air, but what your favorite, because you asked me what my favorite chapter was, and I asked you what your favorite chapter was, and your favorite chapter treats the Gilded Age, which is, as you note in the chapter, a chapter that deals with material that is sometimes presented in rather a cartoonish form (laughs) by moralizing historians. Yeah. So first of all, when we talk about the Gilded Age, number one, what does that term mean? And secondly, what does the term second industrial revolution mean? Sure. So Gilded Age is a connotation created by Mark Twain. I'm sure you're familiar with who Mark Twain is. And it was a sarcastic connotation. The point that Mark Twain tried to convey was that while the upper class is living in material opulence, which increased economic output, there was a lot of social conundrums in America. The working class was living in very poor condition. They were working in dangerous conditions. And he believed that those conditions were not highlighted enough and that we focused too much on the upper class and what they were doing and how their doings is the thing that contribute to America's advancement. So Mark Twain wanted to pinpoint on the fact that, yes, America may have created a lot of economic expansions, but they did that at the expense of the workers who did not benefit from that economic expansion. But yet there are objective ways that we can determine whether workers prospered during a particular period. And of course, the most obvious one is to look at trends in wage rates and Mm -hmm. One of the points you make in the chapter is that the trend in wage rates is upward during this time. Yeah, wages dramatically increased, especially when you compare real wages in America to the other Western powers such as the UK, Germany, France, and we will say Russia too, because Russia was considered power as well. So let's say they were like a Western power. So when you compare their real wages to America's, the US had the highest wage. And why even the U.S. had the highest wage? Because of immigration. The U.S. has a really high rate of immigrants coming here. And where those people came from? They came from those Western powers, from France, from Italy, from the U.K., from Germany, from Russia. They were coming from all of these places. So when you have these flux of immigrants coming here and increasing the workforce and manual labor, these people are going to get a higher salary compared to those who stayed. Because they heard that, oh, if you go to America, you will have a better life. That's why they all moved to the U.S. But if a whole bunch of people who were really skilled moved to Bangladesh, I think Bangladesh wages would still be pretty low. So there's got to be some other factor making wages go up. I mean, capital investment has to be part of it. Labor productivity increasing has to be part of it. Absolutely. And that's where the robber barons now come into the picture. because. You have a group of men in different sectors of the economy who took risks, especially at a time when government spending was less than 3%. So the other 97% of total output has to come from somewhere, right? It came from the market. It came from people who took risks at a time where we know there was no internet, nothing. So it was extremely difficult to just start a business. You have someone like Cornelius Vanderbilt, who started a steamboat business, a shipping business, and he 
each profit that he made, he reinvested that in his business. And then when he saw that specifically by boat, the shipping business was declining to move toward the railroads, he decided to sell everything he had in the symbol business and invest all that money, his shares and everything in the railroad business and created an empire. And we saw that in the 19th century, railroads were like planes at the time. It was the new technology of the transportation industry. It was faster. It was cheaper. It was definitely cost efficient. If people could travel from New York to Los Angeles in a matter of days compared to taking a horse car that would take them at least six months, if not a year or more, just to make the trip. So in addition to Vanderbilt, you have someone like J.D. Rockefeller, John Davison Rockefeller, who was able to refine oil, to provide kerosene to people so that they could have light at home. So the fact that people had light at home by using kerosene, they could study at night, they could stay awake longer and be more productive at night. Because before that, there was no electricity in the US. There was no electricity. So whenever it's dark, people were going to bed. But with kerosene, people were able to stay awake longer and studying and being more productive. And Rockefeller was selling kerosene sometimes at a loss just to drive away his competition. And people were buying it because he was providing value to people. That's why Rockefeller became so wealthy. And the same was applied to Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, he's the one, first of all, I remember I watched even a documentary about him when they were saying how he became like one of the robber barons. He built a bridge and there was a superstition saying that in that bridge, no one was able, like they were not sure if that bridge was sustainable. So we're going to put an elephant who's going to walk on that bridge and see if it's real. And that bridge worked because Andrew Carnegie used steel. It was the first time bridges used to be built with wood back in the day, but Carnegie was the first to use steel, a completely new raw material that was never used before. And he also did that by providing steel at a lower cost, which drove, again, his competition away. So you have these three men who provided excess of value to the American economy. When at the time, the government was barely existing. It was rather non-existent in the economy. So people have to use their bare hands. What I mean by bare hands is using their creativity, their intelligence, all the resources they have to create value, to produce value to society. And that was the period from 1870 to 1900. Those 30 years was a period of extreme economic expansion. And that's when the United States surpassed everybody and the standard of living completely increased. It completely outpaced or outperformed the ones in, in Europe. And that's why you have so many people by the end of the 19th century who wanted to come to America for a better life because the rubber barons, the so-called rubber barons, who I believe did not steal anything from anyone, but just create value through their artwork, produce that value for us. They create that value for us. They made life in America better. And that's why today we are so proud to claim that we are the most advanced nation on earth. But that advancement has to come from somewhere. Well, it's so important for you to make this point in your chapter for a couple of reasons. First is that these days, even people who might ordinarily favor the free market have understandably 
in some cases, kind of soured on some corporations because of all the woke stuff, because Mm -hmm. of the vaccine mandates. They feel like, well, the corporations are just as bad as the government these days. So they're not inclined to say good things about them. And sometimes they don't deserve to have good things said about them. But the problem is, this is going to undermine proper economic analysis. And proper economic analysis shows us that it's activity in the private sector that leads to higher wages and leads to greater prosperity. And so, yes, whatever you know, axes to grind we may have against certain companies today, we can't let that blind us to the fact that it's the private sector that drives this sort of thing. Or sometimes if you say John D. Rockefeller, people roll their eyes and say, well, look at the Rockefeller Foundation and all the evil that it's done. That could very well be that in the name of Rockefeller, a lot of evil things have been done. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here, which is that certain kinds of business activity lead to good outcomes. Yeah, And in particular, the thing about workers... It's true that American workers were earning more than workers in other countries, but I want to place an even finer point on that by reminding people of a statistic I bet none of us learned in school, which is that for all the stuff we read in our textbooks about early labor unions, Mm -hmm. by the year 1900, only 3% of the American labor force was unionized. So these higher wages than anywhere else were coming about not because of unions, couldn't have been because of unions. They were not substantial enough. They were trivial. Yeah. And one final thing, if you have something like steel, like Andrew Carnegie Mm -hmm. dramatically lowering the price of steel rails, or Cornelius Vanderbilt, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. dramatically lowering transportation costs, well, this has ripple effects throughout the entire economy because everything uses steel and everything requires transportation. So you're going to make everything less expensive for people, which means they can enjoy a higher standard of living. And yet this, what should be obvious insight is almost never conveyed to anybody because it's much more fun to be cartoonish about devil-horned people in the private sector, you know, and and opposing them are the wonderful, selfless people in the public sector looking after the public good. That's just got to go right in the trash bin. Yep, exactly. And on top of that, like what people don't realize is that there would be no working class without the upper class. Because for a working class to exist, they need to be hired and be paid for their work. And in order to be hired, you need to work for someone who has the resources and the means to afford your labor. There has to be a demand for labor somewhere. Exactly. Yes. And that's what the rubber barons did. They create the American working and middle classes. Because first of all, they applied managerial science to the conduct of business. Because when you look at Standard Oil, Standard Oil was the true first corporation in America. I mean, you also have the railroad, like the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. That was at the time when corporations started to take place. And what fascinates me about the Gilded Age is capitalism in excess, but I'd love that excess. Why? Because it was free. Capitalism is inequality, but inequality is liberty. Because when you have a system, when people are free to pursue their self-interest, you will never get the same outcome for everyone. And those who perform best, who do better than everyone else, we trust them. So we say, you know what, guys? We're going to entrust you with our money, with whatever. We believe that you can do the job. And that's where it leads to monopolies. And as Smith talked about that in The Wealth of Nations, when he said this is one of the issues with liberalism and capitalism in general. Of course, no system is perfect. Of course. But it is important to understand where monopolies come from. 
monopolies come from the fact that you have an entrepreneur who is outperforming everyone else because he's doing a better job than everyone else. That's why you have monopolies. Of course, there are ways to work around monopolies, but the Gilded Edge shows how liberty is important because when you let people do the work themselves, when you let them pursue the self-interest, it leads to a better outcome. And the result is crystal clear. The standard of living in the United States completely outpaced everyone else in a matter of 20 to 30 years. It's amazing. And that's why people want to come here. And people keep complaining, oh, well, the rubber barons, you know, like they live in material opulence while everyone else was poor. That's not true. Sure, yes, they did live in material opulence, but that material opulence did not fall from the sky. It had to be built. It has to come from somewhere. Who was with John Davidson Rockefeller when he started Standard Oil? He had to take that money from somewhere. The guy who had a shipping business, he was delivering food. He was extremely frugal. He used whatever money he made, he used that money and went into an industry that was, first of all, dangerous. And there was no guarantee of success. Refining oil is not an easy job. And what people don't realize is that whether it's railroads, steel, or oil, these industries are capital intensive because you're dealing with real assets. That's why like even real estate is an industry where you spend a lot of money because every industry where real assets or tangible assets are the core of all the operations, it's capital intensive. So imagine the amount of money they have to spend just for operations and to maintain those operations. It's a lot and people don't think about it. And the worst part is that people don't understand that there is no guarantee that it will work. That means that you have to make it work. Entrepreneurship is very hard. And I really take it personal when people are not grateful about entrepreneurship, specifically about entrepreneurs who come to the market and bring an idea, like they materialize an idea to make our lives better. I think entrepreneurs should be celebrated. We should even have like a National Entrepreneur Day. Of course, we don't have that because we say that they're evils, they're monopolizing everything while everyone else is poor. Hey folks, quick sponsor message. You have problems. My sponsor, Persist SEO, has solutions. So problem, you're getting buried by your competition online. Solution, build your brand, your reputation, and your lead flow with digital marketing by Persist SEO. Problem, you're a small local business and you're trying to compete against large companies in the service industry. Solution, Increase visibility with Persist SEO. What about low or no leads coming in on a consistent basis? That's death for a business. So the solution is website search engine and conversion optimization that can help move the needle to a more prosperous business model for you. Problem, you're not showing up on the search engines for your services in your area. Solution, get found with Persist SEO's expert search engine optimization. And there are so many other ways Persist SEO can help you. All you have to do is call 770-580-3736 or visit them at ineedseo.help for a free website audit and consultation. That's 770-580-3736 or ineedseo.help. I'm rather fond, I now I can't at this moment remember exactly where he said it, but Ludwig von Mises was reflecting on the issue of equality and inequality. And leaving aside whether people's incomes are equal or their wealth is equal, I think it's safe to say, even though when I say it, it'll sound controversial, mm -hmm. 
It's safe to say that the actual experiences of people, when I compare the experience I would have had as, let's say, a 17th century peasant Mm -hmm. and comparing myself to a rich 17th century aristocrat, and then comparing the difference between somebody who's wealthy in the 21st century and somebody who's poor in the 21st century, I think in the 21st century, the experiences of the rich and poor are far closer than they were in the 17th. Because in the 17th century, as Mises said, the rich person traveled in a coach and four, a coach driven by four horses, while Mm -hmm. the poor had to transport themselves on foot, sometimes Mm -hmm. with no shoes. Today, the rich person has a really fancy car and the poor person has a beat up car. But they both have a car. So the experience is still much closer. Or even as a poor person, I can have the greatest music ever composed piped into my home 24 hours a day. I can travel through the air. These are things that were unthinkable even to Rockefeller. Yes, absolutely. And to come back to the car example, when you say the rich and the poor, yes, the rich has a fancy car, the poor has a bit of car, but they both have a car. And especially if we take the case of the United States, both have a car thanks to who? Henry Ford, a guy who actually didn't even go to college, but who was obsessed with engineering and mechanics. He manufactured the Ford automobile. To me, this is crazy. And these are people that we are vilifying. It's mind-blowing to me, like how society has become ungrateful to those guys. Sure, they were not perfect. Yes, they were ruthless at times because, hey, it's business, like, Sometimes you have to be if you want to increase output, if you want to get results. But at the end of the day, everyone was better off compared to the beginning of the 19th century. This is something that people shouldn't forget. Let's talk about a section dealing with Black Americans, who you say were at the lowest level of the income distribution, Mm -hmm. and reflect on that, on what's going on there. I mean, obviously, it's obvious enough. I mean, if People have just recently been released from bondage and they're in a society that holds them in contempt. Well, it would be some kind of miracle for them to be on an equal footing with everybody else. But Mm -hmm. of course, developing out of this is a kind of debate that goes on between, you know, the famous one between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois about Mm -hmm. which way forward for black America. Should we have a way forward that involves more political activism or one that tends to shun that and focus more on economic uplift. So maybe you can say something about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been a strong proponent of Booker T. Washington's views. And the reason is because Booker T. Washington understood that when you live in a society like the United States that is governed by capitalism, even though there was a system in place where Blacks were kept in slavery and bondage for a long time. That system still had loopholes. And it's because of those loopholes that you had some Blacks at the time when slavery was a legal institution who still managed to become extremely wealthy, even wealthier than whites. So now we should ask ourselves, if slavery was legal, how some Blacks still manage to become wealthier than whites. The blacks who managed to become wealthier than whites, they create businesses. And who were their customers? Whites. So those blacks understood that if we want to be able to compete, to integrate ourselves in American society and compete with the white man, it's not by political activism, but it's by creating 
an economic system for ourselves that we can sort of dominate. And Booker T. Washington want Black people to understand that, guys, if you guys want to be part of American society, to be part of the American dream and make it for your family and for the community, let us learn skills, practical skills that will actually enable us to have financial freedom. And that's what Booker T. Washington focused on. He focused on education, not necessarily academic education, but the education of skills, practical skills. That's why I consider him the father of vocational training or vocational schools in America, if you can put it that way, because he encouraged every single Black person to devote themselves toward learning a new skill because there is no better investment than investing in yourself. Bugatti Washington understood specifically that we were moving in an era of technique. The more specialized you become, the higher will be your income because people are willing to pay more for someone who has a very specific knowledge about a complex problem. This is why lawyers and doctors have always been paid more than anyone else. So lawyers, doctors, accountants, financial advisors, whatever industry you want, but when you have specific technical knowledge about a specific problem, people are willing to pay more. They're willing to pay you more for that. So that's what Booker T. Washington wanted. He wanted people to specialize because the more specialized you become at something, the better it is going to improve your standard of living because people will be willing to pay higher for your services. W.E.B. Boy believe that, true, we need to specialize in skills, but we also need our rights. Jibor believed that Black people should be educated in terms of civic education. Now, incidentally, if I may interrupt for a minute. Sure. There's something quite plausible sounding about that. That's not a ridiculous position for somebody to take. I can understand where he's coming from on that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because to him, he saw that, he said, at the end of the day, in order for you to have access to economic mobility, you need government permission because government is the one that grants people rights, the right to property. And I believe that's where his analysis here was wrong because government doesn't grant you rights, they protect your right. Your right to property is inherited. It descends from a higher power than government. The role of the government is not to grant you that right, it's to protect you, it's to the government knows that you already have that right. It's its role is to simply enforce that right for you. But Jiboy believed that the government is the one granting you that right. Like if the government doesn't allow you to start a business, you can. So he believed that in order for Black people to have access to economic power, they need to focus first on the political power. While Booker T. Washington believed that we need to focus first on economic power before getting political power. Because when you have economic power, you can shape political power. And that's very true. When you look at campaigns today, campaigns is all about money. Who can pay the most for ads? The more money you can, the more capital you can raise for your campaign, the more donation you can raise for your campaign, the higher is your chance to win the election. So you see that the real engine of those activities is economic power. It's the finance, it's the money. And for some reason, W.E.B. Boy won that debate over Booker T. Washington. And I think the reason why is because 
the approach of Booker T. Washington was a long-term investment. And people did not want to wait. They did not want to spend all that time for that long-term investment to become fruitful. They wanted change immediately. They wanted now. So they start focusing on advocating for political rights and they start abandoning their economic rights. Because when you look at, for example, the status of Black before and after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, before the Civil Rights Act, Black people economically were better off. Why? Although they were in a system that was oppressing them to unprecedented levels. Like you have Jim Crow laws, all these discriminatory laws that prevented Black people from doing X, Y, Z. And yet, that's when Black people were doing better economically or financially. Why? Because they had no choice. They say, okay, we live in a society where white folks don't like us. We have no one else to rely on but ourselves. So we're going to do the best we can to create a community, a society for us that works for us. And they kind of did to the point that they even created Black Wall Street in the late 1910s, but unfortunately got destroyed by the people of the Jim Crow regime. And at that time, Black people were very entrepreneurial. They created businesses left and right. Like the community created even schools for apprenticeship, how they can increase the level of productivity of the Black community. Black people were very entrepreneurial and productive at the time. And there was even a study by, made by Thomas Sowell showing that the level of unemployment was actually lower compared to after the civil rights era. And the level of single parenting was also lower because Black people understood that they had no one to rely on by themselves. So they prioritized the family unit, they prioritized hard work and productivity, efficiency, and they understood that by relying on themselves, by relying on market mechanism, they can improve the community's welfare. And after the Civil Rights Act, when that law, which was, don't get me wrong, necessary, which was very helpful for Black people, when that was enforced, that's when now government programs start to kick in for Blacks and all this. And what happened was that that shift happened when Blacks now move more toward political rights than economic rights. And as a result, Black people became more dependent on government. Linda Johnson would take massive advantage of that opportunity to ensure that the Democratic Party has its hand, its grasp on the Black community. But we can dig into that later if you want. But yeah. that is my position is that prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Black people favored the market and the market worked for them. And they were better off economically and financially than after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There's a guy I wrote a little bit about. I have a, I think my book with the stupidest title is 33 Questions About American History You're Not Supposed to Ask. That is a terrible, atrociously bad title. But if I may say so, it's a really good book, and I'm really happy with it. And question number 32 out of the 33 involves a black businessman named S.B. Fuller, who in 1935 took $25, and from that created an enormous cosmetics company that was very successful. Yep. And his attitude was, if people are going to be unfair to us, I can lament that all I like, but there are a lot of us, and at the very least, I can create a company catering to the lots of us, and we can start there. There are so yep. many of us here. There's no reason we can't build something 
and cater to each other. Now, I dare say, as tough as it is to run a political campaign, it's vastly easier to do that than it is to start a business. I think it's vastly easier to run a political campaign. So it doesn't require the hard work and the uncertainty of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And so what I think wound up happening was, we take a case like Detroit. In Detroit, you got everything you wanted if you were W.B. Du Bois' advocate. You got everything you wanted. You got black politicians in every office, but you didn't have the underlying infrastructure of the society. You didn't have the entrepreneurship. You didn't have the tradition of that. You didn't have that being emphasized the way political activity was. So if all you have is political activity, but you don't have anything underneath that that you've really been emphasizing, the result is going to be disappointing in the same way that Gramsci talked about the importance of culture and cultural institutions, that if all you have is a political victory, but your opponents occupy all the institutions, your political victory isn't going to mean much. Yeah. And so likewise, you can get a big black political victory, but if you don't have people being taught the kinds of things that they need to prosper, the political victory is going to be hollow. And that's exactly what happened with the Civil Rights Acts of 1964. That was a political victory for blacks, but economically, it was a disaster. And that's what I've always explained, even in my previous book, the one on generational poverty. I made a comparative analysis between blacks and Jews. Jewish people have been oppressed, God knows for how long. It's, it's, when you think about it, Jewish people have been oppressed more than blacks, in my opinion. And yet, wherever you put those guys on earth, they managed to be successful. Jewish people, they were not allowed to, if you notice, Jewish people, they were never in agriculture. There's a reason, because government did not allow them to own land, to do farming. So what did they do? Rather than lamenting and act and protesting for political rights, they say, you know what, we're going to tailor ourselves towards services. That's why the service sector, the service industry has been dominated by Jewish people. Banking, business, everything. As I say, like they've been oppressed for a very long time. And yet, they always manage to be financially and economically successful wherever they are because they understood that instead of focusing on trying to protest for political rights, let us focus on improving ourselves. Let us focus on increasing our productivity. Let us focus on creating an economic system that will work for us. Let us focus on creating services that can provide value to people, even to the one that hate us. And that's what he did. Jewish people are rarely in politics. But in the business world, it's hard to compete against them because they're extremely organized, because they understood it from the get-go. This is how they're going to acquire the freedom and the respect they deserve in a civil society. And that's what Booker T. Washington wanted to do for Blacks, but Blacks were so focused on the oppression that was upon them and by the words, the rhetoric of W.E.B. Du Bois and his disciples that they basically abandoned the fight for economic and financial freedom. Sowell used to also point to Chinese Americans as an example of a people that generally shunned politics, but when they did get involved in politics, it wasn't so much for the purpose of advancing Chinese American interests per se, as much Mm -hmm. as it was just advocating for the general welfare the best that they could. So it, it was quite different. And of course, they... Again, we're not having a competition here to see who 
who was oppressed the most, but the Chinese Americans did not have it particularly easy either. Oh yeah, especially with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Oh my God, that was that was rough. But by, I mean, the statistic that I know about Japanese Americans is that by 1959, Japanese American households had equaled white households in income. Yep. And by 1969, they were one third higher. And these were people, remember, sometimes a lot of Americans didn't make subtle distinctions during World War II when the U.S. would be at war with the Japanese and Mm -hmm. there were Japanese people here in the United States. Not everybody was very good at distinguishing here. And of course, we saw Japanese Americans actually being interned. Mm -hmm. So you could say that there was a, you know, a bit of racial prejudice against them. Just a bit, having been at all-out war with them. But again, their emphasis has not been on political involvement. So anyway... That's a separate, I mean, we could get, we should probably do an episode on Thomas Sowell one of these days. I tried oh, yeah, to get him on. I tried. I, I came really close. He sent one of his books all set to go and talk about it. And then I just couldn't, couldn't quite make it work. That's okay. That's okay. He's done enough <laughs> service to the human race that his absence from the Tom Woods show will hardly be noticed. But I am, however, grateful for your repeated appearances on the show. And I will, of course, link to the book we've been talking about. We've been talking about volume one Mm -hmm. of A History of Wealth Distribution in the United States from Colonial Times to the Modern Era. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 2270, along with the email address and the link that you mentioned at the very beginning about your publishing company for anybody interested in that. So again, thanks so much for your time. And one of these days, we'll talk about volume two. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, folks, that is another episode of The Tom Woods Show. I will see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.